1: And once it was a podcast hosted by Amy and Paul, they liked to have fun. Yes, they had a ball. They talked about movies until they were full. The year is 1980. The movie Raging Bull.
2: Whoa! <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Unspooled.
1: Unspooled. I'm Amy Nichols, And I am Paul Sheer and This is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list. We are watching from the 2007 edition to see if these films are really as good as people say. Do they hold up now? And how have they influenced the films that we watch Today,
2: How have they? Tell How me the
1: truth. How have they? Amy, uh, the film we're talking about today is Raging Bull. The film that we talked about last week was Annie Hall. Before we get into Raging Bull, I wanted to talk about some of our listeners' comments about Annie Hall. So let's just jump right in.
2: Uh, yeah, I'll start with Mark Evan Neff at Question Mark Neff, who wrote, Hey, spooled. When Amy said Alvy is the only one who can stop time, I thought, oh, he's Zach Morris.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I love that. And yeah, you know what? Who, you know, I guess, I didn't realize that Saved by the Bell was kind of like the cultural brother of uh, of Annie Hall. I mean, it makes sense. I, I mean, can't
2: believe they didn't pitch the show that way. I cannot believe they didn't put that in all the posters.
1: So, uh, Lewis Camera writes, I just finished listening to the episode, and I'm not surprised that the negative review was by John Simon, who was notoriously mean-spirited and nasty. Roger Ebert had this to say about him. Strip away all that false pretension, and you'll find a real pretension inside. He does a great act, but read his actual reviews and you'll find that he uses intellectual scare tactics to conceal his fundamental lack of sympathy for film. It's not that he's too hard on movies, it's that he doesn't understand them and he understands their audiences even less.
2: The critic has been critiqued.
1: I love that. That's a really interesting point of view and and really a damning uh, critique on a critic from a critic that I really enjoy. We don't read a lot of Roger Ebert on the show, but um, that's a real damning... uh, Takedown. That Flam. is. That
2: is. That is. And I think that is actually a fair—I think that as a personality trait that a minority but still existent percentage of critics does have. Yeah. You know, they come in just flinty, fists up, never wanting to like anything. And even if, if they do happen to like something, they're mad that they feel like they quote-unquote lost that the film beat them into liking them and then they're mad at it, anyways. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I love, I don't love reading those reviews because they actually make me angry, but I do somewhat enjoy it when I stumbled across them.
1: <laughs> Here's somebody who's taking a shot at me. Jenny Riley writes, I don't get how Paul loved how Alvy doesn't have an arc, but hated how Forrest Gump doesn't have an arc. What gives? In both movies, the woman grows more than the man, although the man is the narrator and clearly the main character in each. Although apparently it's terrible in Forrest Gump, but it's genius in Annie Hall. For the record, I think it's terrible in both. Wow, that's interesting. You know, I didn't realize that I basically contradicted myself in two back-to-back episodes. Um... I don't know. You know, I, I want to kind of put together my thoughts. Amy, what What are you thinking when you hear that?
2: I don't know. I mean, I guess my first thought is to kind of take a step further back and be like, it is interesting that the character of Alvy Singer that Woody Allen creates here doesn't grow in the movie, but that the Woody Allen character that seems to exist do- also doesn't seem to grow that much over the course of his entire lifetime of making films. Right. You know, this kind of neurotic, self-centered person doesn't ever really seem to grow up for him in real life, I don't know. That well, does, that's just the first thing that crossed my mind.
1: Well, I'm thinking about it now, and and thinking like what I like about uh, Annie Hall is that it's a snapshot, a true snapshot of a real person, right? It it's kind of putting his flaws out on the table, and we get that from the opening, you know, the opening monologue about you know I never wanted to be a part of a club that would want me as a member, like that that opening, and, and talking about love and and saying like yeah, I'm going to keep on doing this, and there's a an element of him knowing himself. Yes, he doesn't change, but he's aware of himself and he's aware of his surroundings. And I think for me with Forrest Gump, it's a drama, which I'm gonna give a lot more weight to having a character arc. And Forrest Gump is a character that goes from a small town, sees the entire world, interacts with so many different people, is affected by so many different events and doesn't change. Woody Allen is, we're talking about a character who finds it hard to leave like a little area of New York, you know, um, so there is something I, you know, in Confederacy of Dunces, I'm going to enjoy the lack of growth in that character because I think it's a realized character. But I think with Forrest Gump, it, it, uh, it just, it makes no sense. It's like Luke Skywalker coming back at Star Wars and going like, well, now I'm just going to work on the farm again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, sure. I up the Death Star, but I mean, you know, I got to got to do, you know, got to get the moisture evaporators working. You know, and I and I and I feel like Woody Allen is, as a writer and director, is kind of maybe it is him, maybe it isn't him. But I I I think that being able to tell that story honestly and have that character make the play about himself—he's he basically is saying, "I'm not changing, and what I've grown and what I understand about myself is that I won't change, and I will never change, and I'm living with that." That's the, and so I do think there is an arc in that knowing of themselves. That's what I would say.
2: I mean, to tie it together, though. I think there's kind of a fun irony in the fact that Woody Allen did make his own Forrest Gump movie. He made Zelig, you know, right. a man running through time, bumping into everybody existing out of sorts. That um, maybe there's this kind of weird personality fusion, and to fuse everything together, uh, here's Pete Thomas who writes. You know, the way that Annie Hall needed to leave Alvy, it mirrors how I feel about Woody Allen films, that he was funny, he was important, he shaped my taste, he was influential, but as a person, he is awful and staying with him is holding me back. And I hadn't thought of that, how much people's experience with Woody Allen today actually imitates what we see on film that Diane Keaton is doing.
1: Right. And that's kind of
2: fascinating. Like, we learned what we did, we grew, we had some laughs, we made fun of some lobsters, and all right, I'm in California, peace out.
1: You know, and maybe, uh, you know, we can always look back with with that, uh, with fondness, but we are not going to live in that time anymore.
2: Well, was, thank you for that, Pete Thomas. Thank you uh, for that lovely fusional synergy.
1: Um, you know, as we get into our next film, which is almost the anti-Annie Hall, I would say, uh, I wanted to just remind people that the holidays are coming up. And we have merch. You can head on over to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see our amazing new uh, AFI Anarchy shirt designed by our own Kim Troxtel. It's uh, amazing. And uh, I believe it's still on sale. There are a lot of sales this week. Also head on over to Podschwag to check out our amazing, beautifully designed uh, unspooled poster. You can cross it off with us. But it's such a gorgeous piece designed by Scott C. I love it. So Uh, great for the holidays. Uh, So much fun. And uh, another great heartwarming Christmas movie has to be Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. Wouldn't you agree, Amy?
2: No. No, oh, I
1: wouldn't. No. No, pop uh-huh. this on get the family around Christmas Eve, watch Raging Bull, you know, by the fire, drink some eggnog. You know, everyone dresses like Joe Pesci. It's great. It's my favorite fa- my favorite family Christmas mm. movie.
2: Where are you having Christmas this year?
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm doing it down at the gym, you know, with all my friends.
2: All right, cool. Well, wherever the gym is, I'm going to be thousands of miles away.
1: Well, um, you know, as we get into Raging Bull, we asked you a question last week, which was?
2: Which was, I asked people to pitch their own raging animal movie. Raging Blank, insert your own animal here and give us a pitch for what it would be about. Let's listen.
1: The
3: Raging Orangutan. How fights. Palpites- became the leader of the free world. And, of course, that has to be directed by Clint Eastwood. Raging Parrot. Polly will get that cracker.
4: My movie is Raging Walrus, the John Bolton story. An
1: entitled
4: man
3: born into luxury,
1: doesn't realize his own shortcomings until it's
3: too late,
1: and he's impeached as a result of it.
5: Raging Peach!
1: One raging film I'd like to see is Raging Dinosaur, story of an aging man who just can't understand why everyone keeps saying "Okay, Boomer." Uh, those are good. Those are some good ones yeah. in there.
2: Paul, do you got one? Pitch me something.
1: Um, hmm, let me see. Uh, mine would be uh, Raging Canary, and it is about a person who rats out the mob. He, you know, he basically rats them out, and then, um, and then. In hiding, as he's in witness protection, he sees another member of the crime family getting all these accolades for being the person who took down the crime family. But it was his testimony that took down the crime family. And this person's getting book deals. He's getting, you know, uh, features and movies. People think he's a real hero. And the raging canary is like, I'm getting so mad that he actually gets out of witness protection uh, to show the world like, no, no, it was me. I was the guy. And then puts himself at uh, grave danger.
2: That's actually quite good, and it makes me think of one of my favorite throwaway moments in Raging Bull that I doubt we'll ever get to, so I'll just say it now, which is when Jake is giving his uh, new girlfriend a tour of the house, and he's like, that's a canary. It might be dead. That was a canary. I don't really know. It was a canary. It's dead. Uh,
1: I love it. Uh, All right, well, Amy, let's get into Raging Bull, our feature presentation. It's in the hole! It's in the hole! It's 1980. The Vatican's official newspaper declares the Blues Brothers to be a recommended viewing for Catholics everywhere. That is 100% true. It is the first and last year a Grammy is awarded to the best disco recording. It went to Gloria Gaynor for I Will Survive. John Lennon is killed by Mark David Chapman. The first one gig hard drive is produced. It costs... and weighs over 500 pounds. The Rhinoceros Party of Canada receives 1% of the popular vote for its campaign to repeal the law of gravity and provide higher education by building taller schools. The popular movies are, like I mentioned earlier, Caddyshack, The Empire Strikes Back, Airplane, The Coal Miner's Daughter, and today's film Raging Bull. It ranks number four. Number four, it's in the top five on the 2007 AFI's top 100 list, up 20 points from its placement at number 24 on a previous list. Let's take a listen to a clip. I
4: got some balls, some balls. I take the dive, what more than one. Huh? You want me to go down too? I ain't going down. I ain't going down for nobody. Why don't you do me a favor, huh? Do something for me, just put your hands up, I wanna show you something. Put your hands up. What the fuck is so hard about that? Hey, Joe, you don't understand. You don't understand. I had to fight a bum. He's a bum. I fought the guy, tapped him like that. All of a sudden, he's like this all over the place. What hey, am I going to have to fucking pick him up and help him.
1: Amy, Raging Bull, who's in it? What's it about?
2: Raging Bull, it is directed by Martin Scorsese. It is based on a script that was worked on by himself mainly, also De Niro, attributed to Paul Schrader and a man named Marduk Martin, who scripted everybody uniformly, was like, eh. But it's based on Jake LaMotta's actual memoir called Raging Bull, My Story, and it stars Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta, who actually found the book and was like, we need to make this movie, Scorsese, please. And Scorsese was like, eh. And he kept at him, he kept at him, he kept at him, he kept at him, he kept at him. He, at him. he used a real uh, Raging Bull strategy to wear Scorsese down. They made this film with an assist from Joe Pesci as his brother, Joey LaMotta, Kathy Moriarty as Viggy LaMotta, A New Discovery, and then a bunch of great faces that we've seen around and a million other things.
1: Yeah, I mean, this movie is basically a who's who of great Italian-American actors. I mean, everyone from, like, John Turturro to, I believe, everyone who was on The Sopranos. Uh, and, I, you know, I didn't do any research into that, but I believe everyone who was on The Sopranos. Amy, I will say that when we first announced this film, the reaction that I got from a lot of people were, ugh... Oh. Like, not excited about Raging Bull, like, yeah, I'll get through it. Whereas we've talked about The Godfather, we've talked about Lizard Vaz, we've talked about 2001, there seems to be a genuine excitement. But there was an energy to this film that was a little bit more like homework than on other films, which I was surprised about in regards to how this film is held up in our society. It is, you know, viewed as one of the best films, one of maybe Martin Scorsese's best films.
2: Yeah, I mean, this film has, I think, an energy that is very unique in that top five, which is it is not a feel-good film. I mean, granted, The Godfather is not quite a feel-good film either, but this is a feel-bad film in a way that Almost no other film on the list really is. I mean, what we have here is a film that, at the center, is about this real-life boxer. His struggles, the way he beat people, the way his his alcoholism, that starts to maybe look like, at the beginning, like, oh, is this possibly, could this be a Rocky-ish type movie? You know, could this be about an underdog city boxer, somebody that we kind of care about, a lovable lug? And then this movie says, oh, no, this is not at all what we are about. We are about hammering home the way a man with this temperament is abusive, is manipulative, and destroys his own life. It is a story about abuse. It's about toxic masculinity in the guise of a film that is very, very, very masculine, which makes it a hard watch.
1: Well, I also feel like it is a boxing movie that's really not about boxing. You know, just to reiterate that, like, when you take all the boxing sequences and you add them together, it's about 10 minutes. You know, and this movie is about two hours and 10 minutes. So two hours of this movie is... You know, really a character drama, and I couldn't help but notice the similarities between this and Taxi Driver. You know, these are, you know, men that feel um, betrayed by women, that have jealousy, that have anger issues. Um,
2: That idealize a blonde they don't know and follow her around.
1: Yeah, I mean, the similarities are pretty mind-boggling, and it makes sense that, you know— Most of the same players are involved, but—
2: And it is interesting that we fight over what Taxi Driver was trying to say with the character of Travis Bickle, and that this film, I think, has a heavier punch to it. Like, no, you if you were ever in doubt of how we feel about this type of man, thud, 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 we are trying to say something about our own worst impulses here.
1: You know, before we dig into this movie, I want to dig into where Martin Scorsese was when this film came to be, right? He is— in the hospital from an overdose of cocaine. Um, He had just made this uh, big movie with De Niro, uh, New York, New York, which did not work. Uh, And I think he's feeling like maybe his career is gonna be over at this point. You know, De Niro really pushes him to make this film. Um, Like you said, he didn't want anything to do with it. Um,
2: yeah, he doesn't like, he did not like boxing. He did not like aggression. When he read the book, I mean, the book is even nastier than the film. The book has, it's where Jake rapes his wife. And Scorsese is like, I do not want to well, do this. Well, by the I, way, he beats a man to death. And he's like, I don't want to
1: do this. Well, did you know in the novel, Jake Lamotta never even mentions his brother Joey? Um, the first drafts didn't include that character at all. It wasn't until Paul Schrader went to a local newspaper office in Key West and started digging around that he discovered that Jake had a brother. And, And I think that relationship really is the thrust of the film and what I think... Makes this film different than Taxi Driver, yeah. Right, but
2: that is sort of what made this a process for even Scorsese and everybody involved to figure out why did they even want to tell this negative story? Like, what was interesting about it? What were the relationships that anybody could care about? Because, yeah, to your point, like, for where Scorsese was at right now, he was at that moment where everybody looks around, you know, kind of like a Trevor moment, where everybody's like, "Oh, we thought we liked this like upstart indie filmmaker." I don't know, like people like Stanley Kaufman, who we've been reading a lot on the on here, because he yeah. has a lot of negative opinions about a lot of films. You know, he called Scorsese, quote, the highest watermark in inflation since Germany 1923. Everybody was like, "You have overhyped this guy." We don't think he has what it takes. And Scorsese was responding to it by like, I mean, he was in the middle of a divorce. He was taking so many drugs that he weighed only 109 pounds. Wow, 109 pounds when he had his big attack, and he really was thinking like. Nobody thinks I have talent. John Cassavetes would scream at him at parties. They had gotten into a big fight where John Cassavetes was like, "You are wasting your talent, being just high and, waste- and and ruining your life like this." And he thought, "You know what? I'm going to go out with a bang here. Fine, I'll say yes to this film, and then I want to go to Europe, and I just want to make documentaries."
1: Wow. And I mean, that's
2: what he was prepared to do. He was like, "I'm going out with this."
1: But he didn't phone it in at, at all. I mean, he was so laborious in his post-production. Uh, process because he thought it would be his last film. So he wanted to be as uncompromised as possible. And this does feel like he's wrestling with the same themes as Taxi Driver. I don't think it's saying the same thing, though. The idea of having success but not feeling worthy of it, not feeling like people are uh, ever giving you your due, and you start to rail against a system that's not even there. You know the the moments in this film where Jake LaMotta explodes, uh, you know, once on his brother, you know, well, multiple times with him. And there's a tension there, you know, obviously with his wife. It it all comes out of nothing. It's it it is these things that he's building in his head, and if he would have. Just live the life that he had, and and just embrace what was actually what was actually happening. He could have been a happier person. And knowing all the stuff about Scorsese, I'm like, oh, I wonder if this is a little bit of a reflection of him. Like, I'm not good enough. I I'm gonna do coke. I need to get at like it. In a weird way, it's a self portrait. I think, based on the limited facts of what we know. You know, somebody who's up and coming could be the biggest you know person out there, but through his own issues, destroys all of that. and he stops himself from destroying it by making this movie.
2: I mean, I love it. you say reflection because he said that he made this film for this one minute in this in the film where Lamata looks at himself in the mirror and mm-hmm. feels a moment of peace. And he was like, that that character got to a point where for even for a moment, he got to feel peace. That's what drew him to it. So I think, yeah, you, you you saying that it's a reflection of him I think is really interesting. And comparing it to Taxi Driver in that way, yeah, I love how you're framing it. Because, yes, these two characters are both men who see things that aren't really true, that are obsessed with stuff that isn't actualized in the world. You know, are kind of caught up in their own negative, spiraled thinking. And yet, Travis Bickle is a man who, from everything we see, is not talented in anything. Has nothing to make him right. special. Is set up to fail just by who he is. He's born into a failure of a body, kind of. Whereas whereas Jake LaMotta could have had everything and cannot let himself win.
1: I mean it's that idea of imposter syndrome to a certain degree, right? Like, do I belong here? I mean, to a to a much heightened degree. You know, like I believe that he sees Everything else, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You know, he gets it and then he's like, well, wait, now it isn't so green. You know, he, he's never going to be happy. He has I, an
2: endless appetite, like yes. for, for something he doesn't have, for something. He wants so much from everybody in a way that they can never, ever, ever give it to him. Because as soon as he gets this bite, he wants another one.
1: And I didn't find that this character has a passion for boxing. Like, you know, there is something about the, the, the boxing films that we know, even the sports films that we know that – are yes, they're all often rooted in a feel good. Like I'm gonna do this because my girlfriend's dying. Oh, my mom would be proud of me because I've worked my whole life for this. We're talking yeah, about. Yeah,
2: Rocky me. wants to be a boxer. Yes. Rocky, Rocky loves boxing.
1: Well, my takeaway from this is he wants to be famous. He wants to be applauded, and not to say that he's not without talent, but that his end result is like idolization, and that's why like it's such a. An amazing opening scene after you have that great uh, title sequence uh, where he's just like doing this shitty, not even vaudeville act, like this kind of, uh, you know, he's basically hosting at a strip club that he owns to give himself a moment on stage. so He gets attention and adoration, you know. Yeah.
2: Let's listen to that because it is the best bad slam poetry.
1: Because one night I took
4: off my robe and what I do, I forgot to wear shorts. I recall every fall, every hook, every jab. A voice where a guy can get rid of his flab. As you know, my life wasn't drab. Though I'd much, though I'd rather hear you cheer when you delve, when, though I'd rather hear you cheer when I delve into Shakespeare. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. I haven't had a winner in six months. though I'm no Olivier, I would much rather... And though I'm no Olivier, if he fought Sugar Ray, he would say that the thing ain't the ring, it's to play. So give me a stage where there's bullhead and rage. And though I can fight, I'd much rather recite. That's entertainment.
2: And you have that phrase, that's entertainment, yeah. ringing in your ear when the film, which is edited amazingly by Thomas yeah, cuts brutally back in time, 25 years, to a young him in the ring getting hit in the head. And I feel like the that's entertainment rings over that scene. This well, is entertainment. A man yes. getting a man here that we're watching look like a and a man who's been taking hits on stages his entire life.
1: And you watch that opening fight and that sequence where it basically devolves into this melee. It's just, you know, chairs are being thrown into the ring. And this movie, I have to just say, you know, is so beautifully shot. It It, in many ways, feels like you're watching like a black box production of... A film, you know, it's obviously shot in black and white, but...
2: Yeah, the way, like, the the fans in the boxing ring just kind of seem to fade away after a row or two into just nothing.
1: Which is kind of the Rocky technique, right? Remember, because they couldn't afford all those extras. Stylistically here, this movie just is so engaging. And I think it's the way the camera moves... Obviously, we'll get into it in a little bit. The fight choreography, like he's the first person to get the camera in the ring, you know, really shooting this in a different way. But the And black- our guest
2: this week is Michael Chapman. Yes. The DP on the film.
1: And like that movement and the way they're, they're capturing all this sort of stuff. But it feels very personal. And the black and white, you know, was a choice that he made to differentiate it from all the other films at the time. You know, especially, you know, the idea of like making sure it didn't feel like Rocky. But I want to talk about one thing. I'm sorry. Uh, you know the idea of what it was like for an audience to see Robert De Niro in this opening sequence. Here he is, 60 pounds heavier than we've ever seen him. And the worst
2: fake nose.
1: The worst fake nose. But he looked, I mean, this is the beginning of that idea. Like, you know, he gained weight for Al Capone and Untouchables. Daniel Day-Lewis builds a house for The Crucible. This idea of like, you're really watching uh, method acting to an intense degree, we talked about Marlon Brando and method acting, but this is—you know—he's really becoming this part. Where I think Marlon Brando did more things to his body. De is like, no, I'm gaining the weight. I'm doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to cheat. I feel this. like
2: Marlon Brando, like in Apocalypse Now, was like, I am who I am. You mold this part to me. Yes, it, it is now embodied Shoot by me. me. Whereas, you know, here we have, we've been talking about this a bit with De Niro and with Pacino, these people who were steeped in Marlon Brando from the time they were a kid, being like, I'm going to Brando Brando, I'm going to do the Brando, I'm going to halt production on this film for six months, go to Italy, eat a bunch of food. And then come back and have everybody on set be worried that I'm about to die because I can't even breathe properly. I'm, like, gasping for air. And everyone's like, okay, okay, okay. I think you've taken this too far. Wow.
1: You know, the, uh, the editor of the film, Thelma Schoomaker, uh, her husband consulted on this weight gain because uh, he would shot a film in 1943 where the lead character gets significantly bigger throughout the film. And he's like, you know, you could do this with camera angles. You can do it with padding. You can shave the actor's head to make his head look bigger. But they wanted the realism. And I think it all comes from this, this idea, like, if you knew this was going to be your last film, you know, and I think this is Scorsese, if you knew it was going to be your last film, if you knew it was your last chance to work with somebody, and, and that's probably from De Niro at the same time, do, you know, let's go all out. And in a weird way, this is, I think, a movie that you know, really brings that trend. I mean, it's the 80s. So this brings that trend, I think, into some of the the icons of the 80s, like really living the part. Like, you know, I, I think Would you
2: ever gain weight like this for a role?
1: I just lost 30 pounds for Black Monday.
2: Was it 30? Yeah. I mean, what? Yeah. You've been looking great. I Thank didn't you. know it was th- 30 yeah. pounds? Yeah, I went
1: from a 34 waist to uh, like, I mean, I guess I wear like a 30. Well, I guess I have a pair of pants that's 31 right now.
2: I don't, I didn't even think you had 30, I'm sorry, i know. I'm processing that. That is, no. a, that is, that is two of my cats. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it, It. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it doesn't, it's not like crazy, but I knew I had to be for this part. I just had to look different enough for this opening scene. And you know what? It may not even read, but for me to be like my character to be revealed a, you know, a year later in a way that was trying to be different was, you know, I wanted to make sure I tried to do it. Now I didn't. I mean,
2: do you kind of enjoy that? You're like, oh, I have an excuse to go work
1: out a lot. And absolutely. I loved it. It was great because it would just force me to, to just be conscious of stuff. And, you know, and, and again, I'm doing it very healthily. Like I wasn't going to Italy and just, you know, I mean, not gaining weight. I think gaining weight is actually a lot more of a problem than losing weight, losing weight. I'm at a normal weight right now. I'm, you know, uh, I was not, overweight, but I was not, you know, I, I'm not underweight. So I'm not like, I'm not becoming the machinist over here. I look fine for my size. Um, but Whenever you talk about these guys gaining weight, it, it's it's uh, it's a lot. Like I remember Charlize Theron talking about like microwaving like pints of Haagen Dazs and just <sighs> downing them. I just think the losing of the weight for that just seems so not fun. Like it seems the,
2: so hard on your heart. I yeah. mean, like apparently De Niro couldn't couldn't really even tie his shoes when he came back because he was just so unused to even moving within that body. Yeah, and that Scorsese, who loved to be a person who usually did, you know, thirty takes if he needed to do it, he was like okay, for most things I can get away with it, we're doing three because I don't think your health is good. We just need wow. to get through this so you can lose That coming
1: weight. from a recovering addict too. Yeah,
2: <laughs> You add them together and it would have averaged out to the weight that they're both supposed to be.
1: And you're probably talking about a De Niro who's in his best shape of his entire life. You know, he tra- You know, he trained... For, you know, months, so much so that he's also, like, doing real boxing matches uh, in Brooklyn. He won two of the three that he did. Yeah, so He, he broke one of Joe Pesci's uh, ribs when he hit him. Oh, yeah. there's a, I was listening to uh, Scorsese's commentary track on the film, and there's another break uh, early on in the film. Uh, one of the first boxing matches, somebody also gets, uh, you know, uh, a bone broken. You can hear it in the background. And, and, you know, that's one of the things about these fight scenes is— they're more brutal than triumphant you know uh, I think we're used to seeing boxing even in a movie like Creed when when you're watching Michael B Jordan in the second one but really I get brutal a tiger. <laughs> but when you when you watch Rocky get beat up and brutalized there is an element of he's losing but this movie from the first punch you know it's an explosion of blood it's it is it feels wet it's melons it's literally melons exploding and punching melons and this idea of it feels sloppy and ugly. And that one moment I I think of so clearly is when De Niro goes over to his opponent. I forget. He's like, I never went down. I never went down. I never went down. His eyes are like just so ballooned out. He looks so, he is defeated, but claiming he's never been, you know, he's not defeated. He didn't go down. He didn't go down. Yeah. I
2: want to listen to one of those fight scenes, you know, and there's kind of two I want to play. One yeah. of them is just how the fight scenes are for most of the film. This kind mm-hmm. of aggressive, in-your-face, unromanticized, just assault almost. Yeah. Of, of visuals and of, and of audio. You can see the contrast in their style. You just have this mix of like heavy blows, audiences cheering, but it's not, it's kind of cheers that almost sound on the verge of happy and angry. They yeah. could go either way, it's very heavy. And then later on in the film, when he starts fighting and losing, like being out of control, not ever really even being sure in his own powers of his own physical body, yeah. they start adding in these like animalistic mechanical sounds. They start distorting the sound, they start making it even crazier. I mean, the whistles are sounding like lightning, like that. It's, it's almost like the tornado in Wizard of Oz. Well,
1: he's using the sound of gunshots for camera flashes, and you know, and it's like I said before, squashing melons and tomatoes for the punches, and
2: Gallagher's over here being like, <laughs> <"Hey!">
1: <laughs> but you know, after the film was complete, he destroyed all those tapes so the sounds could never be used again. So they are authentic to this film, which is kind of cool. It's kind of that a dick move? No, I think it's great because <laughs> it, it, like, it's like that kind of hard work. It's, like you want you want to. You want to make yeah. sure you preserve that. It's like the same reason why you won't hear like, you know, an R2-D2 beep in every robot that you see on screen. Like you want to you wanna hold true to what you've Gallagher created.
2: needs to make that money every time.
1: <laughs> you know, you're talking about the sounds, but there are also visual cues that they're using in this that are amazing. Like he, uh, Scorsese used different size boxing rings to kind of show Jake's frame of mind. So when he fights Sugar Ray for the first time, you know, it's and he's thrilled, it's big and it's bright and it gets smaller and more confining as things go worse and worse for him. Like, so he's playing with perspective and I think the idea of it all being in black, I think puts you in the mindset of a fighter because you're not looking at the audience, you're not looking at the crowd, you're just looking here and it's all about what's happening Eye to eye, and
2: yeah, there's a tunnel vision that it really captures. You know, fogging everything else in the background.
1: Yeah, Um, and I just love that. I mean, and it, it allows those scenes. I mean, besides the fact that you're in the ring, like you are in the ring, like you're. you're most of the film is POV of the uh, of Lamada or Jacob Lamada's opponent, essentially. You know, it, it, you're right there, and I think, you know, a film like this, you can forget. How innovative it was because we've seen so much of it, like, especially with the boxing stuff, kind of taken and, and cribbed, and, and even now we're to a point where it's even better. Because um,
2: yeah, how many films have we seen at this point where it's like, I'm a boxer, I'm vaguely affiliated with the mob, uh, I'm gonna throw a fight, I'm gonna need my, to I win. Mean, my yeah, career I mean, yeah, this is our third, or is it? I this mean, your, I was thinking I was about
1: first. Bruce Willis and Pulp Fiction throughout the entire time. Of it's it. our
2: fourth, it's our fourth. Yeah. We've got Pulp Fiction, Waterfront, and uh, Rocky.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean you know Four and it,
2: of the hundred films I'm sorry That kind of does bo- start We love the hundred Boxing films.
1: represents America Amy It's one person Against everybody else You gotta Everybody go. else How many people Do you think Are in the ring well, A lot Sugar Ray is at least 10 um, <laughs> But it, I think that's why Scorsese was actually nervous About using text From on the waterfront Because he didn't want To draw these comparisons To the movie You know he wanted You know wanted To use a quote From Richard III But like they're like No <laughs> yeah. like, way
2: well, I have this idea yeah. Richard III Audiences are gonna love it
1: But you know Of course LaMotta would be obsessed with that. You know, I think I was reading something last night where I was saying, like, you know, a lot of the times you're thinking it's De Niro doing Brando, but it's not De Niro doing Brando. It's LaMotta doing Brando, who is really doing Terry Malloy. So it's it's LaMotta doing Terry... (laughs) Malloy, even though it's uh, De Niro doing, Brandon. Yeah, it's, it's I always want to like,
2: listen a little bit of that because that's yeah. the end of the movie. It, I mean, I know we're in cheap and jumping ahead to the end of the movie, but I think I'm really impressed acting wise with how difficult it is for you to act badly. Yeah, I think it's almost a master class in clumsy phrasing and stumbling over your own tongue.
4: It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. You remember that night at the garden? You came down my dressing room and you said, "Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson." Remember that? This ain't your night? My night. I could have taken Wilson apart that night. So what happens? He gets a title shot outdoors in a ballpark and what do I get? A One way ticket to Palookaville. I was never no good after that night, Charlie. It was like a peak you reach and then it's downhill. It was you, Charlie. You was my brother. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have looked out for me just a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit instead of making me take them dice for the short end money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am.
2: And what's so striking about this entire scene is in a way, the story of Terry Malloy is not that different from him. He had a brother who was really important to him. Yeah. His brother was incredibly valuable. He did take a fall. He did attempt to have some sort of class. He is a bum. All of these things are true, and it feels like this character that he's playing doesn't even realize how true it is for him, because he's not saying these words like they mean anything. He's not being method about it, even though it is literally his life he's describing that was also in a
1: movie. I mean, not to to drill it too finally home to a movie that we've talked about a bunch this year, but... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, I I thought idea- you were going to say Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, I was waiting uh, for it. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it is a great film, though. Um, but that idea of four years before Beverly Hills Cop 1, this movie comes out, just if you're keeping track. <laughs> uh, the, but the idea of, you know, revealing yourself through a character. But what I love about that scene, and we talked about this on, on, on The Waterfront, it's the most done thing. I could have been contented I could have been somebody he's doing it in such a way that it doesn't even ring out like a scene from on the waterfront. It doesn't like, if you listen to it and you know, that's what you're listening for. It just is words. It, it's not poetic. It's not, um, there's no emotion behind it. It's like trying to remember, it's trying to remember a grocery list while walking to the store. That's what it feels like. I'd like some
2: of, eggs and maybe a contender.
1: Yeah. It's like, it's just in there. It's like, was that old Sesame street cartoon of a thing? Of applesauce. And some eggs. Remember that?
2: Wait, I I I think I do. What is that?
1: It was like the uh, oh man. Now we have to play that. Hold on. A loaf of bread, container of milk, stick of butter.
2: Oh my god! What is that? That's gonna make me get a loaf of bread, a container of
4: milk, and a stick of butter. If you can't remember, I'll write it down for you. That's okay, mommy. I won't forget. I remember. Local bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. Local bread, a container of milk, and a stick
2: of butter. How dare you just play something so deep from my subconscious that I didn't even remember was there? (laughs) That's terrifying. I feel like I'm looking at myself in a mirror, remembering my own (laughs) past. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean
0: and on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: I mean, the real Jake Ovada really did definitely try to be an entertainer. He was definitely not funny. I pulled this clip of him uh, on David Letterman, which I'm going to apologize for in advance.
3: It was a wonderful experience because, in my opinion, uh, Robert De Niro who, uh, I mean, the picture was nominated for eight Academy Awards, and the earned superstar Robert De Niro a well-deserved Oscar for Best Actor.
5: Accepting for uh, Mr. De Niro.
3: I told the producers i like to play myself in the picture, mm-hmm. but they said to me, that uh, they said, he said to me, Jake, you're not the type. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so they were thinking of using Sammy Davis Jr. instead, but he couldn't do it either because he was too Jewish. Now, <laughs> you don't like that. No, <laughs> that's, that's
5: what we need. That's it. Um, we'll be playing Ramadians all over the country, Jake. Uh, um,
3: I, thought, I thought it was cute. Oh. It was cute. It was cute. I, the last thing I want to do is get you upset. No, no, no. Uh, that's, that's the past. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's funny. Like, that, that sequence where he's said the, the strip club, it's, these are the jokes that he's doing. You know, when, when the real Jake LaMotta saw the movie, he realized what a terrible person he was. I mean, we talked about this idea of, like, looking in the mirror and seeing it. Like, it took him—he <laughs> wrote a book that painted him in one way, that the development of that movie, the shooting of that movie, and to see the film and go, oh— Am I really that bad? And he said it to Vicky Lamada and she's like no no you were worse.
2: <laughs> oh, his I, actual ex-wife.
1: Yeah, I mean and and you know I think a lot of the frustration of Jake Lamada apparently came from him not understanding what people were saying because he had pretty terrible hearing loss. So I thought that was an interesting point of view too. I mean, not that you need to know it, but the idea of like mishearing things and being suspect and you know not that this is what scorsese was doing but he definitely uses slow motion a lot throughout this film you know uh like slowing down the frames and you get to really see this movie is really beautiful as far as pov kind of art because you really get to see like a touch of the face a kiss of the lip and and as things slow down you 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 get to you get to examine this jealousy like it you live inside jealousy i think for the film which is I think a hard thing to capture that idea of like your
2: insight is that like when he gets jealous, when he sees something that triggers him, the film stops and you see it in slow motion. It like shows you his face and it shows you what he's looking at in slow motion to show how heavily it's registering on him that his wife is kissing somebody on the cheek. Well, he's talking to somebody, although when he was on the set working on the on the film with De Niro talking to him about himself De Niro came at his character with so much empathy that during the making of the film, Jacob was like, I thought I was a bad guy. I guess I'm a good guy.
1: Oh, wow. Well, you know, it's interesting because his anger is almost like a child's anger. It's not... I've seen a lot of movies where you see, you know, a husband abusing their wife and you see, uh, you know, uh, just a violent man, you know, or, you know, hurting someone else. And there's something about this movie... Maybe it's just my perspective on it, but I don't view him as being fueled by like I think his it's fueled by emotions like it's 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 embarrassment, it's uh, it's shame, it's you know anxiety, it's it's all these emotions are making him do this, and it's a different way of showing it. Like he is a very multifaceted abuser and violent man. Like, and I don't think that you get to see that side because well, I'm not sympathetic to him. But it's not just like he's a bad guy.
2: Yeah, well, yeah. In one of the very first scenes he has when he's sitting at his kitchen table with his brother, Joe Pesci, when we're really starting to hear him talk as who he is out of the ring. I mean, first we see his style of abuse, which I think is really interesting that he's the type of fighter who even in his fights with his very first wife asks for one thing that could be reasonable if it weren't for the timing and the way and the way he hammers at you and he hammers at you and he hammers at you like in the steak fight here where he's like questioning he, this character doesn't realize how much he's insulting her by questioning everything she's doing while she's doing him a favor.
4: Don't overcook it. Overcook it's no good. It defeats its own purpose. What are you doing? I just said don't overcook it. You're overcooking it. Bring it over. What's your stick? Bring it over. Bring it over. It's like a piece of charcoal. Bring it over here. You want your steak? Yeah, right yeah. now! Good. There's your steak. Can't wait for it to be done. No, yeah. I can't wait. Good. Okay? Happy? Happy? That's all I want. That's, That's all I want. Here. No more. Here. You bought me a... Of you of a steak? You bought me a bought a steak? Yeah!
2: It's like these It's like these building microaggressions, you know, mm-hmm. building, 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 building. And then he immediately does it of again in the very next scene. He, like, sits down with his brother, Joe Pesci, who comes in to kind of interrupt the fight. And he admits something, I think, kind of vulnerable to him, which he seems to say fuels everything about him, all of his insecurity, which is that he has these tiny hands. And that being a person with tiny hands means he'll never be who he is. That, like, I mean— we all, I mean, tiny hands. Right. I, I find this fascinating because we've been talking about tiny hands as a character trait in in the news, yeah, uh, for reasons that everybody already knows. But like, it's fascinating to see that this in this movie is even a real thing that men with tiny hands have a Napoleonic complex, apparently, or they're never content with what they need to prove. Seems to be what this movie is saying. Well, I think I, that, I, I think
1: that this is a character that is sexually inadequate on some level. You know, we don't necessarily, I mean, is he impotent? We don't know. Like, we don't see him, like, really having sex. We see him being kissed and, you know, but it's not, it's a different, there's something different about him. Like, there's a, I feel like he's compensating for something.
2: Yeah, compensating is exactly it. And it's interesting that he's in this career where all the attention is on his hands. Mm -hmm. And yet... They are the thing that he's most insecure about. And they're a thing that you can't change. They're the thing right. that you just have with you. They're a thing that's which, always visible. I
1: mean, which is essentially the biggest Achilles heel for somebody like this character. It's like you can't make it different. Like, you know, he's living in this world where they can look at those hands and he can always have that to hang over his own head, you know?
2: Exactly. That it's just who you are, and everybody can see it all the time about you, that you wear it on you. And then he has then he launches into a fight with Joe Pestry immediately. Yeah. And I think this one's interesting too, as just this example of who he is. He handles Hammers at a thing, unsatisfied, until he gets what he wants. And I I find this – I love it. This is a little bit of a long scene. But I think it's just such an interesting example of how abuse and control works. Yeah, there's a book I love called The Gift of Fear. I think I've even talked Mm. about it here. And it talks about how in an abusive relationship, there is no room to negotiate. Like you cannot negotiate because once you do, they take a step forward and a step forward again. And you hear that in the dynamic even between him and his brother. I want you to hit me in the face.
4: What? I want you to hit me in the face. Forget about it. Joey, I want you to hit me in the face. Go ahead. Go ahead take your back. I shot. said forget about it. I ain't doing it. Come on. We have fights all the time. What are you worried? Now you're gonna hit me in the face? Hit me in the face. Go ahead. No. What are you afraid? Afraid of what? Come on. I'll be a little faggot. Come on. Hit me. I ain't a faggot. Take your back shot, God. Come on, Jack. Huh? You gotta be a real jerk. You want me to punch you in the face. Hey, Joey. Did I not tell you just to do it? No, I'm telling you, you got to do it. I ain't hitting you. Hey, you little yeah. brother, Joey. I'm telling you something. I know what you said. I ain't doing it. I don't care if you get mad. I ain't doing it. Fucking I'm not doing it. I'm not it. I don't have any gloves anyway. What am I going to hit you with? table? I ain't Who's that over there? What? That's right. Who's that over Wrap it around your hand, How many times I gotta tell you? Not too many more. Go ahead. All right, go ahead. You want me to hit you? I want you to hit me with everything you got. I want you to fucking lay me out. Go ahead. You sure? Yeah. All right. Harder. Yeah? Each punch I like can take it up the ass. Come on. <laughs> Harder. 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 That's hard. You fuck. What do take you want? Off. Take it off. Ah, oh, come on. You wanna stop now? Take That's enough. With that. Come on. Uh, Come fuck on, fuck around, man. Come on. Girl, uh, girl, uh, uh, I'm gonna smack you again. Throw it again. Enough. Hot, uh, hot. Hard, hard. Nah, your fucking cuts are
2: opening and everything. What are you trying to prove? What does it prove? That's the line that I love. What are you trying to prove? Because here right, we're 15 minutes into the film, and that's the question. What yeah. are you trying to prove? And he never he's never able to answer that. He's never able to prove to himself whatever he needs to prove.
1: Yeah, it just he's never going to be happy. And there are people out there that I feel like live that life, you know, and not in this abusive way. But, you know, I think it sees itself in different ways. It's destructive. I mean, he pushes everybody away. And when he has people who legitimately care about him, you know, from the woman, his wife, cooking the steak, to Kathy Moriarty's character, uh, to who I love, by the way. She's fantastic in the movie. And, then, um, and Joe Pesci, who I think we talked about this earlier, like he takes this movie out of the Travis Bickle world because he... He grounds him to the world. Like, this is his brother. They've been it together. Like, you know, he's working for his best interest. And De Niro is working against his best interest at every given point. Um, You know, if they say, sit, he stands. Yeah, it,
2: even when he gives in. Even when he's like, I'll take the fall for this. I'll, I'll, I'll fall when the mafia tells me that I have to fall in this fight. I actually literally won't fall down, though. I'm going to stand yeah. and make it obvious they're making me do this. I will do it, but I won't even play along with it.
1: You know, when and, we, and we're talking about Scorsese a lot with the Marvel stuff. And I would No, oh, no, no, we're not. No, no. we'll never tell you about
2: that again. What do you mean? Uh,
1: but no, but here's what my point on it would be like I could imagine his reaction to those movies are kind of based in this Jake Glimmer reaction like don't tell me I have to make a thing like this. I don't put me into a mold that I can't break out. Of. Like I don't want like, you know, and maybe I'm putting words in his mouth but basically reading that op-ed and going like, "Well, here let filmmakers make films that they want to make. Let them explore spaces. Let them be unsafe. Let them do the things, not the things that are supposed to happen, you know? And and here's a character that I think he relates to railing against that system. All right, I do have to take a fall, but I'm not going to fall down, you know? And I could see- Raging auteur? Yeah, but no, but there, but there is something about it. Like when I was thinking about that in, in, the, in regards to the Marvel movie, I, I could see that system in his mind being very similar to- trapping you in a box telling you when make to you fall a Offer
2: you can't refuse yeah here's 300 million dollars make me a Star Wars but yeah I mean this film I think even enters as being more of a classic style film than it even is you know mm-hmm. the score that you hear at the very beginning says like I am old school get in the zone we're going back we're going back to the 40s like
1: Get ready. Yeah. Well, by the way, they don't score this movie. This movie is not scored, and and it is interesting. It's not. It's pretty silent for the most of. Yeah. It. Like, yeah but you go. open
2: with this. Yeah. It's like sets the tone. <laughs> and it just says like, take me seriously. I am a classic film.
1: I mean, this is Italian composer Pietro Mascagni, and uh, and. Scorsese chose it because it had uh, so much sadness to it. You know, there's two directors in this movie. Did you realize that? What, what? Well, Martin Scorsese obviously was a director, but one week he got sick and his father came in to direct the wedding sequences. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. So for a whole week, it was his dad directing the rooftop His
2: dad? Sequence. Yeah. Why, why do you Mar- think he picked uh, his dad?
1: Uh, I don't know. Maybe Charles was, uh, you know, had was handy with the camera. I should have probably done a little bit more research on his father, Charles Scorsese. But uh, I, maybe it was the idea, like his dad could cover from without. I mean, here me, I'm just throwing out a fucking wild yeah, theory. Yeah, like, make something up. Yeah, that it wouldn't be like he wouldn't have to go through the DGA and have a big deal if if he kind of just like on the sly got his dad in there to cover from. Because what if his dad you, was
2: just wearing like a black wig to get to cover up his? Uh, I'm assuming gray hair. He was
1: uh, like, I love, he's in a big trench coat too, and it's like two little kids underneath him. Uh, the uh,
2: I do want to talk about Joe Pesci though for a second because you. Know, this is such a Joe Pesci performance, and in a way, it's like the performance that launched Joe Pesci. Joe mm-hmm. Pesci, I didn't know this about him until I started really researching this episode. Did you know that Joe Pesci was a child TV actor?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't know that. I know that he was uh, a retiring from acting when this movie started, but I didn't realize he started yeah, as a child. his
2: career started when he was a child. He was one of the kids on a show called Star Time Kids. This is what the credit oh, sounded like. Oh,
1: my goodness. Bruno, New York, on behalf of Spend, the control
3: detergent, tough for washing clothes cleaner whiter clothes than any you've ever seen and Bendix first to introduce the refrigerator with the kinetic frame presents the star time kids with America's most talented child stars
2: he was on the show I could not find a clip with him actually on it so if anybody has one I'm very curious to see what a six-year-old singing and dancing vaudeville type Joe pesci from the 1950s was like but yeah he Grew up, grew into being Joe Pesci a little bit, did a couple tiny movies, but really hadn't made it. The biggest thing he had done was this movie called Death Collector, where he's playing kind of a, a Joe Pesci character. Here's what that movie was like.
3: Don't wear sneakers anymore. Not
4: even nuance. No ones? Not even nuance. No ones.
3: All right? All
4: right. I'm going to go get some ice. We're going to celebrate.
2: We got a bottle of scotch.
4: We're going to drink till we throw up.
2: I mean that's a very 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 low budget movie, uh, and I it's also a just B noticed,
1: movie that Scorsese just happened to see him and he's like that's the guy right? He's like
2: that's the guy. I didn't realize until he did this like that two of our clips have a character being like do me a favor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. He always seems to like he seems to be a guy who doesn't like acting because I, I I kind of got familiar with Joe Pesci from Easy Money that Rodney Dangerfield movie and I was like you know he wasn't even going to be in this movie he was retired but you know now looking him at his filmography. He doesn't really go away. Like 1980, he makes one movie. 1982, he makes two. 83, he makes two. 84, he makes two. 87, he makes one. And he keeps on making movies pretty much every year until 1998. And his biggest break is like from 98 to 2006, he's gone. Like just Lethal Weapon 4 is done until The Good Shepherd. And then he comes back, takes a little bit of a break, comes back for Love Ranch, then the Warrior's Tale and now the Irishman. But he's a guy who seems to not necessarily feel like the need to do it. Like he I think he just feels like he'll do it when he wants to.
2: Yeah, which I mean if I was like an actor who could afford to do that that would be the way I'd want to do it. I never understand why actors keep acting even when they're in bad films unless it's, like, this Nicholas cage compulsion.
1: Gotta pay, you gotta pay the bills, baby. <laughs>
2: but, yeah, he had been working at an Italian restaurant for four years when they called him about, about Raging Bull. He was like, I'm out, I'm out. And then they're like, what if you came back for this one, though?
1: I mean, he's such a great character. I always like him so much, and I think, you know, when I think about him, you think about him purely from, like, or at least for me, from Goodfellas, your favorite movie, and Lethal Weapon, you know, which are kind of caricatures of what he's kind of doing so subtly in these movies. You know, it's it's the the broader version. And, and obviously, Goodfellas is not a broad movie, but like he definitely is a little bit more amped up than he is in this and in this film.
2: Yeah, and it was Joe Pesci who was why we get to have Kathy Moriarty in this film. Really? Yeah, because he had seen her. She was just like a lovely girl who hung out at nightclubs, and he also hung out at nightclubs. And he saw her at a club, and he was like, "Did he seven- fuck her?
1: Did he Whoa. fuck her?
2: That was really intense. Did
1: he fuck Kathy Moriarty before this movie? Amy, <laughs> tell, me, no. tell me. Tell me, Amy. Did no. he fuck her? Did he <laughs> no. fuck her? No. Get over here,
2: Amy. <laughs> <Fuck>. That's terrifying. <laughs> You need to shave your mustache so ah. you're going to yell at me like that. <laughs> Hi, yes. Ah. So Keshit was like, I know this girl. She looks exactly like the real Vicky LaMotta. We got to get her up here. And they did it. Like, uh, the SAG did not want her in this movie because she had not acted before. Oh, wow. Yeah, but they took all these pictures of her to SAG, and they took pictures of the real Vicky, and they said, do you not see how much this girl looks like her and has her kind of composure and demeanor? And SAG was like, okay, fine, you can put her in this movie. But she was just a complete unknown. And it winds up being one of those stories that I sort—I of, love hate, you yeah. know, because I think she's incredible in this movie. Oh, yeah. I love her. She has this way of always looking at Jake. Like, he is the scum of the earth. Like, oh, she yeah. secretly hates him. Like, it is just- She's
1: smarter hilarious. than him from day one. I mean, yeah. even you see her, like, she knows how to work all these older men. She she has a sense of self. She's such a strong character. And in, in a way, I would argue the strongest character in the film. Yeah. Because she has her her barometer for who she is, is the cleanest.
2: There's something about her that is so untouchable like mm-hmm. she lives very deep inside herself where Which like is men why have been he calling at her him. her whole life and she will not surface mm-hmm. for them she will give them only what she kind of wants she'll make some compromises but she always keeps this core of herself to herself
0: mhm
2: and she will support him she has tried to support Jake in this relationship and then Early on, they get into this very, very, very big pivotal fight where she refers to a person that he's boxing as good-looking and he never lets it go for the rest of their relationship. Let's listen to that fight and the way that it plays out. Just get down to 155 pounds, you fat bastard. You stop eating. What's the problem? Stop eating. That's all. You can do it. You don't understand anything. Do you understand that?
4: You know, Joey's right. This Janeiro's an up and coming fighter. He's good looking, he's popular. You he beat him Now, oh, Excuse little. me, excuse me. What do you mean good looking? I'm not saying good looking. I'm saying popular. If yeah, you well, win. Well, Who are you to say well, good looking, popular? I'm not say anything. I'm just telling you, Joey's right. Hey, you, what what? do what you want? A or what? No, take it. Get out of here. Take the baby and get out of here. Everybody, all the sons in the diary about this. She's coming out. Where'd well, she find out he's good looking, first of all?
3: She didn't mean nothing.
4: <sighs> Who she? you? just start with me now? When people are talking, you don't interrupt. It's none of your business. Especially if it's my brother and his wife. It got nothing to do with you. Now get out of here. Go inside. Get out. Take the vision inside. Come on. We'll Sleep the grudge. see it, okay? <clears throat> Come on. Change
2: your diapers. Can you see she's going to cry. She's sick. You make her cry. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make you cry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, the spillover of aggression in that scene, too, is so interesting. Yeah. How De Niro's anger triggers Pesci's anger. He takes that on his wife. Yeah. And again, you see that same kind of fight style that they seem to have both inherited or shared, where it's like, here I am. You're doing all the work of taking care of our kid, but I'm going to tell you how to do it, too. It just piss you off that one extra yeah, level Yeah, it's like way. he
1: is almost trying to impress his brother in a way. Exactly. It's like It's like almost like flirting, like, but it's not, you know. You know, interesting about Kathy Moriarty, obviously she's nominated for Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in this movie. Uh, it's her first job, like we said. Um, and then she, like, kind of does two parts and then disappears for a long, long time. Now, part of that was due to the fact that she was in a, a car accident. But she was on record as saying like, yeah, I can only say that no one likes an overnight success in this town. I went for a lot of interviews, auditions, and even cattle calls. I tried for parts, attended meetings, but it seemed like I wasn't right for any of the roles that I wanted and the parts I was offered didn't appeal to me. So I paid my dues. I studied acting. I lost my Yonkers accent. And yes, I cried an awful lot. Um, And then she kind of came back, you know, a handful of years later. And then you know, uh, started being a lot more uh, present.
2: Yeah, and when you hear the stories about how how the set was for her, mm-hmm. I feel like... Let me
1: guess. She wasn't treated very nicely. She
2: wasn't. Surprise! If you guessed that this was another movie where hmm. none of the men trusted that their woman could actually act... Yep. You win! Um, apparently, on this set a lot, like, Robert De Niro didn't trust that she could perform, even though I feel like we see her perform very well. And so... He would improvise with her without warning her, and he would improvise a lot of the violent stuff. He would, without warning, while they were acting, just grab her by the hair. He would, without warning, just slap her in the face. And so a lot of her reactions Mm. were real. And she was like, you know, the nerves that I had in that film that I think translate on screen, those actually were genuine in a way because I was so freaked out about what De Niro would do because he made me feel uncertain. And I always hate it when you hear those stories because I'm like, can't you just give her a shot to act nervous, like I don't know why there's just this thing with these, like with, with I mean, God, we heard the story a bazillion times with um, Hoffman, Shepherd, Sybil Shepherd, over and over again. Nobody trusting that women can do the work on their own, so then they like abuse them on set, and then they tell everybody that's how we got a great performance. I right. like hit her in the face.
1: We treated them like an animal, and uh, that was. I mean, it's it's such a, and we talk about this a lot. Like this is a movie about men that don't trust a man who doesn't trust a woman who this you know the whole team? I'll give it the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, they were so into this idea and putting this forward that it subconsciously just seeped into them. And yeah,
2: method abuse.
1: Yeah, uh, but you know, it's it's interesting. I, I wonder what it would have been like if it was Jodie Foster. Who really wanted to do this part. She wanted to prove she wasn't a little girl anymore. And she had a photographer come and take pictures of her in a very sexy way. You know, and those photos eventually, like probably everything, uh, found their way unauthorized into like adult magazines. Oh, they did? Yep. Uh, so like Jodie Foster, for, like so basically her audition photos. You know, uh, fell out there, you know, and and this is a, you know, Sharon Stone went after this part, Michelle Pfeiffer, Beverly D'Angelo, all interesting parts. And I've you know, and I think they've all kind of played different versions of it. Michelle Pfeiffer, obviously, in Scarface, uh, you know, uh, plays a version of that character, uh, Sharon Stone would have been interesting. I was I, like I like I mean but you know I think when I think of her for the first time I'm thinking like total recall, basic instinct, Sharon Police Stone. Police
2: Academy Four, Citizens on Patrol.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love that, of course, cop. Um but uh I I love her in this film. I mean, she's really really great and uh
2: And she does have that like husky retro presence. Yeah. You know, she does feel like she stepped in from another decade.
1: Very like yeah, Kathleen Turner, but like a little different, too.
2: Yeah, and there's these moments when their relationship gets worse and worse right before she leaves where she stops telling him what she's doing. She starts coming and going, and his jealousy starts to get more unhinged. And she comes home one day, and she's wearing a gray suit that looks exactly like Kim Novak's in Vertigo. Oh, wow. And it really feels to me like there's this little bit of the film that's like, yes, we are a film about obsession just like that one. And it it, it does not feel like a coincidence. Oh,
1: I can't be. I mean, I feel like this movie does such an amazing job at at capturing that, you know, and he's, and Scorsese is such a film buff that, that, you know, you know that he's layering in these little, these little details.
2: The real Vicky, by the way, speaking of pictures being out there in the world, she was 51 when this movie came out and she did a Playboy spread. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she posed for Playboy and she gave this interview that was kind of crazy. Um, She said that... uh, Jake had the idea that she should pose for Playboy, still, even though they were divorced. (laughs) And in this interview, she said some crazy stuff. Like, I hung out with De Niro, and he was so much like Jake, I almost slept with him, which made all the headlines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, the it is kind of one of those examples of being like, oh, man. I mean, I guess you can't blame Playboy for being male gazy. Like, it's a surprise. But one of the captions for her nude photos was like, she's so hot, it's no wonder that the poor man lost control. Like, oh, God.
1: Yikes.
2: Yikes. One of the things I thought was interesting, like hearing about how this film is made in De Niro's head, was that he believed that Vicky had slept with Joe Pesci, Mm. that those characters had boned. And, of course, like Kathy and Pesci were like, what are you talking about? But he was like, no, 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 I think it did happen.
1: Wow. That's, you know, well, it's interesting that his brother sued the film for an unflattering portrayal of him. And I actually think he comes off pretty great. Like, (laughs) I mean, like, yeah, like he's, like there's moments he's not perfect, but he's not... Like, I wouldn't sue for defamation off of that character. He, he seems like a very rational-minded guy, and you feel sympathy for him. But I guess there's also a, a, a part of it where, like, he's probably like, I didn't get punched. He never threw me through my own window in my living room. You know, hey, that The only thing guy. that's true is
2: when I beat up that guy. That, that happened. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I actually want to listen to, to the fight where um, De Niro accuses Cathy of sleeping with his brother. Mm-hmm. Because, to me, it's just such an amusing example of a person who doesn't understand sarcasm.
4: Open the door. Get away! Come on, open the door, I wanna talk Get to you. Get away from me, you're sick! I just wanna ask you one thing. Why'd you fuck Joey? Get away! Open the door. No. <sharp> Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it, huh? Why'd you do I it? didn't do anything! Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? why did you fuck them? Dude, why I you didn't do anything! Them? I fucked all of them, what do you want me to say? What do you mean you fuck? who would you fuck? I fucked over Tommy, Salvi, your brother Oh, I sucked your brother's cock. What do you want me to say? You sucked this cock. Huh? Yeah, I sucked this cock and everybody else on the fucking street too. What do you want? You're not about a fat pig selfish fool.
2: I mean, what you hear in his voice right there, the why did you do it? It kind of breaks my heart in, a, in the slightest way for this character. You hear a person who just always thought the world was going to fuck him over. And he yeah. cannot accept the fact that it won't
1: or that yeah. it didn't. Well, I mean, but think of it within the context of him not being able to hear. You know, if he's catching just a little bit of words and energy, it's like, that would be the worst person to be sarcastic to, someone who is hard of hearing. <laughs> you know, um, I thought it was interesting. We talk about uh, influences, and we, we've talked about this actor before on the, the podcast, but Buster Keaton. Uh, Buster Keaton is a real influence for Scorsese uh, in making this film, because he thought that there's a, Buster Keaton was the only person who had the right attitude about boxing in the films. Like, I guess um, there's a movie that came out in 1926 called Battling Butler, and that was kind of the way that he helped wrapped his mind around the boxing scenes. So it, it's worthwhile of like maybe trying to scope that out and seeing what uh, Scorsese took from that to, you know, or what he saw. I always like to see those influences, especially when we are seeing, we're seeing a lot of influences, you know, the Rocky and the Taxi driver influences, but then to see what the filmmaker was looking at, you know, to get into the mindset of this as well.
2: That is true. And actually, you bringing up Buster Keaton reminds me that we have a fifth boxing film on the list. Remember Chaplin and City Lights?
1: Oh, yeah. So that's
2: like fully... A 20th of the list is boxing movies or movies that are boxing adjacent. Well, it's
1: interesting because, you know, no other, um, sport is as recognized. I mean, we're, and we are a culture, I think of sports films. I mean, we talked about a league of their own, not being on the list, you know, field of dreams is not on the list. Uh, you know, obviously bull Durham, you know, I think major League* should be on the list. Look, Serrano and the chickens, of course it has to be in there. You know, Charlie Sheen, the best, the wild thing. Amazing. Uh, <laughs>
2: I mean, I guess what it says (laughs) is you're right. Like we our our films are a culture of individual hero and not team. Yeah. Imagine if we lived in a culture that was like teams. Teams, teams are great. What if we loved teams? But like now we like that one asshole on zone. Taking taking skulls, taking skulls. You can take a skull. Yeah, I can take a skull. Our next guest is one of the heavyweights of cinema. I think we can say that without Any sort of hesitation, he's incredible. His name is Michael Chapman. He is a cinematographer who worked on Taxi Driver, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Last Detail, The Last Waltz, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, The Lost Boys. He did Michael Jackson's Bad. He did Scrooge. He did movies I personally love so, 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 so much like Ghostbusters 2, Kindergarten Cop. He did The Fugitive. He did Space Jam. And he directed a very early Tom Cruise movie, All the Right Moves. And he directed Clan of the Cave Bear, a movie that very much scarred me as a child. Michael Chapman, cinematographer of Raging Bull. Welcome to Unspooled. Well, so Michael, your history is really interesting. I mean, you started off working in railroads, uh, you were in New Jersey, and then you started becoming a person who made movies. You were a camera operator for a lot of films really early on in your career, including for Gordon Willis on The Godfather, which is a movie we just talked about here on the show. And I'd love to know, being a camera operator for Gordon Willis on The Godfather, what do you pick up on that set?
5: Oh, well, well you see, um, Gordy and I both, Worked for a commercial house in New York City called MPO. And we got to know each other. And he got offered a, a feature to shoot. And he asked me to be his operator for reasons that I still never quite understood since I was a, an assistant cameraman at the time and had never operated much of anything. But he asked me, and I said, sure. And off we went. So I was his operator for, oh, five, six, seven years and did many movies besides The Godfather, Clues, and all sorts of things.
2: What do you learn when you're watching him work when you're that young in your career and learning how you want to make films?
5: It's a little intimidating because nobody has the eye that Gordy had. But he was he was a genuine artist. He's one of the very few people that I've known in my life who I could say was an, an absolute artist. So I was just in, in awe of him and, and just followed him around with my tongue hanging out saying, yeah, Gordy, sure, Gordy, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was wonderful. It was like watching, you know, it's, it's like you got a job in Michelangelo's studio, and you got to watch him paint. You, he didn't teach me how to shoot the way he shot. Nobody could. Nobody can balance the way he did. But he taught me to be passionate and to be locked into it, and to, and to let the art drag you along, or you drag the art along, or both.
2: Yeah, these first years as you're developing all your skills, it blow my mind. I mean, to learn that you did. The handheld camera on the boat in Jaws in the last third dealing with the shark. <laughs>
5: yeah, <laughs> you know that—that's one of those things. The—the the, in those days the unions were divided between New York and and Los Angeles, and you had to have a certain number of people from the from the local from the New York local, and so they hired me, and yeah, and, and I got and and I went there, thinking um, they were going to. Since the, you know, I read the script and there was a lot of what was out on the ocean that they had some big elaborate um, <clears throat> Hollywood method for balancing the camera in, in the ocean and and working out the the sways and the bounces, but they didn't they didn't have anything they hadn't <laughs> they hadn't faced up to it, and so I ended up having to handhold it. It wasn't the only
2: thing to do. Well, I was thinking when I was watching the boxing scenes in Raging Bull that the jaw scenes almost feel like a good preemptive workout you know a good workout to start being like how do I make this look scary how do I put audiences in the shoes of the people who are right here how do I give them that feeling that they're in the middle of danger
5: well um the obvious way is to do what we did was to put the camera right up in the in the ring we had a whole series of rings you know that, that were of various sizes and and uh, some were square and some were long and, and depending on what shot we wanted to do we would use these rings but we put the camera up in the ring instead of covering it from, you know, off to the side or down in the audience so that the, you were up and you were right there with them.
2: I mean, what's it like being the person holding the camera as De Niro was looking terrifying and throwing punches in your direction?
5: <laughs> I, you know, after a while, you don't think of those things. You, 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 you shouldn't think of them. And if you do think of them, you're going to screw it up. You are so involved in the mechanics, which in a way dictate the aesthetics of the shot, that you don't you don't react that way to it, and you shouldn't. The fight scenes were enormously spectacularly spelled out, drawn out in, in enormous detail. You know, we had uh, the camera on a dolly, and we had grips, and and a camera operator, and focus puller. And we got him right up in the ring. The hardest thing was the poor grips pushing the camera in the soft canvas. Oh boy! Yeah, you know we we, we covered the, the fights as if they were just the, anything else. Where if, if people were walking along a road, the camera would dolly with them. If people were sitting talking, the camera would be right there with them. And the camera was right there with them in the ring.
2: This visual language you came up with is so interesting. I mean, this idea that whenever we see something in slow motion. That's Jake's point of view. We're seeing it through Jake's eyes.
5: The fights we we swore to each other that the fights were always going to be 24 frames and they are. At the very end we cheated a little, but, but by then, you know, Sugar Ray is beating him up and it's it's not realistic anymore, but the basic shots are all 24 frames when they when they're fighting. Even the sort of famous shot where, you know, he knocks him down and then he goes to a neutral corner and the camera goes to 48 frames and slows down and then speeds back up to, to 24 and he goes to punch him. By the time he goes back to punch him again, it's at 24. We wanted to make it real, right there. We wanted to make the audience be there, as I say, in the ring.
2: I mean, so we can kind of picture how hard it is. How hard really is it as an operator to be switching your frames per setting on the camera from 24 to 48 to 120 to back oh, down? Oh, that was,
5: that, was, that was hard, but we had a I had. And really good, a really good crew, and we did it mostly by sound. It's hard to explain, but uh, when you go to forty-eight frames, the sound is different. And and as you go back to twenty-four, you 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 have to open up the stop and then close the stop down, and you can do that in in relation to the sound as it changes.
2: I've heard a few reasons about why the film was shot in black and white. I mean, what is the reason? Uh, That's
5: actually that's kind of central. Yeah, it's shot in black and white because in my childhood, and Marty's still—he's not as old as I am—but he was a young kid. Boxing was a black and white sport, and boxing was far more central to our culture then than it is now. I can't—I couldn't tell you the name of the heavyweight champion of the world now if my life depended on it, but I certainly could when I was young because boxing was very much more central to our to our culture, and. It was covered uh, by, by newsreels and by stills, by wonderful stills in, in Life magazine and Look and all sorts of things. And that enormously influences the way uh, the movie looks and it's lit. It, it's lit as if it were a, a bunch of stills from, from Life magazine in 1949.
2: I was really yeah. enjoying your storyboards, because like, when you look at your storyboards of the boxing scene and you really see how heavily storyboarded all the shots were, they oh, start yeah, to get absolutely. scribbled with they red marker on them really for the blood. We were
5: relentlessly We have absolutely knew exactly what we wanted to do, and hopefully we did it.
2: I mean, tell me about some of the other techniques you were doing. Like you, I heard you were using lighters to try to to try to get a cool shot.
5: Oh, oh, oh! Underneath the camera, yeah. One one of them, we had different stylistic things to do for each fight, and yeah. in one of them, we had uh, some sort of. I don't know whether it was a cigarette lighter, but some sort of thing that just lit underneath the lens and so that heat would, would you know, come up in front of the lens and, and distort it a little bit.
2: I mean, knowing that this wasn't your first movie at all with Scorsese, that you'd done films like Taxi Driver, how did the feeling of this set compare to the feeling of his other sets?
5: I don't know. You know, Marty is Marty, and, and the sense the Martiness of these movies is is relentless. Each movie is about something different and uh, Taxi Driver is, is very different from Raging Bull, but they're all, they're all Monty Scorsese movies and his imprimatur is on them.
2: And it does feel like even when you finish, it might take a minute to really see what you made straight. Like I, I was reading that Paul Schrader and you a little bit were disappointed the first time you saw Raging Bull.
5: <coughs> yeah, uh, Paul and I both were. I don't think we were disappointed. I can't speak for Paul. I was not disappointed in in how it turned out, how it was made. I I realized and recognized immediately that it was beautifully made and beautifully acted and beautifully edited and, you know, that that everything short of what it's going to add up to was marvelous. But for a long while, I was dubious about what it added up to. And then I saw it. After not when it came out, but some years later, for some reason I can't remember now why, and suddenly I realized that I was wrong and that Marty was right, and that it was, it was more than just a beautifully done thing. It was a, a really painful work of art, and that once you started, once you freed yourself from being disappointed, all sorts of things came flying out into that you realized that it, that it was all it had all sorts of things that you hadn't thought of. For instance, that Kathy is. Associated with, with water, with liquid, that um, Jake can never get his hands on her. She, she always sort of slips between his fingers and he never can control her. And she does. She is, the first time you see her, you know, she's swimming and, and she's associated, once you think that, and you will follow along and see her, you see that she's associated with liquid and that there's this curious metaphor that goes through the movie.
2: What really struck you about Thelma Skuemaker and her editing style?
5: Oh, Oh, what struck me was that she was a genius. She's wonderful. You know, she, she did, did, I guess that was the first one, was it, that she did? Yes. Yeah. And she's done everyone since then for, you know, 30, 20, 30 or 30 years. She's a great, great editor. And that's part of what makes it so wonderful, is that the editing is so precise and so, and she sees so far into the movie and what can be done with editing. And she's, she's a very great editor. And, and a very nice person, too, by the way.
2: If you don't mind me jumping a couple decades, I feel Please. like... I, Paul and I are both big basketball fans, so I feel like I have to ask you about shooting Space Jam.
5: Oh. <laughs> oh, my. Space Jam, yeah. <laughs> you know, that Space Jam was a huge hit. I never quite understood why. <laughs> but um, that was a movie that uh, I didn't start out. I was brought in. I was, By that time, I was... Warner Brothers and various other people, That whenever they got into trouble, they would call and ask me to come in and do it, to take it over, and I would quote some ridiculous price, and they would agree. Let me see if I can remember, Pat. The guy who was the director had done a lot of commercials with Michael Jordan, and he became a friend of Michael Jordan. So he was able to arrange this feature, but he, was, he had never done a feature. I'm not sure he ever did another one. Uh, and he was shooting it in, a, in just in a kind of goofy. Way. They they didn't know what they were doing in a curious way. So I took it over and we shot it, and it was it was kind of wonderful fun. Michael Jordan was was very nice and worked hard and was disciplined, and and insisted that we f- stop shooting around six o'clock at night because he had to practice basketball, real basketball, every night, and so they built a. Um, a a, a basketball court on the lot at Warner Brothers and at, at 6 o'clock or so we'd stop shooting and he would begin practice and they, the word got around LA that Michael Jordan was practicing and so all sorts of really good basketball players would show up to, to practice with him and some of us would just hang around and just stare in awe at them it was great fun and and had Bill Murray was one of my Bill Murray movies it was I, but I, as I say I never quite understood that it was as much of a kid as it was, but that is just because I guess I was too old. Did you like, Do you like, did you like um,
2: that movie? I mean, I saw it when I was a kid, so it does have a special part in my heart.
5: Yeah, but, but you were a kid. <laughs> Kids loved it.
2: Well, well, speaking of modern movies, there's a movie that came out this year that was really heavily influenced by your work in Taxi Driver, and I was wondering if you'd seen it, the movie Joker.
5: Oh, oh Joker? No, I haven't. I, uh, somebody showed me a some clips from it, and I watched it, and I could see. But you know, there's a basic difference, and that is that Joker, regardless of what the movie's about, I just we're just talking about the way it looks, the way it was shot. Joker is very self-consciously saying, "Look, this is um, you know, this is New York, this is uh, whatever you want to call it." Whereas we didn't do that; we just. We didn't have the time or the money to light New York at night in traditional Hollywood way. So we had to take the lights for that lit Bobby and, and anything we were shooting way, way down so that they matched the lights in the background. And we had to let New York light itself. And that turned out to be, of course, absolutely the best thing to do. And I like to think that I would have done it even if I would had millions of dollars at my disposal. But I didn't, so we'll never know. But Joker was self-consciously doing that. We weren't doing that because there we were and we had to.
2: Well, Michael, it has been so fun getting to talk to you about your incredible career. Thank you so much for making time for us here at Unspooled.
5: I'm honored that you uh, felt you should talk to him. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. I'm honored you took the time. Okay. Bye.
5: Bye-bye.
1: With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer. Because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook
0: Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary dairy. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy
1: gem of a detour. So, Amy, how was this movie received when it comes out? Because we know it is responsible for Scorsese's rebirth, you know, and, and his, uh, you know, his kind of renaissance. Um, but what were people's thoughts when it hit the theaters?
2: Yeah, I mean, they were all over the place, to be honest. Really? They really were. A lot of people, of course, immediately made the comparison to Rocky, which I mm-hmm. was only four years old at the time. Like Andrew Serres, who said, quote, The difference between Raging Bull and Rocky is the difference between undiluted vinegar and pure corn. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He also goes on to say that Raging Bull, when he's talking about psychoanalyzing Jake, a person who we see even in life was unpsychoanalyzable because he couldn't ever retain a thought about himself for longer than a minute. He says that Raging Bull is Citizen Kane without Rosebud, and boy, how Citizen Kane needs Rosebud.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: Variety was not super enthused about it. They kind of gave it a mixed review. They said it, quote, may have wobbly legs. Um, And then they just said it makes a lot of miscalculations and alienating the audience over and over again. It had a line that kind of annoyed me. So it said that Scorsese never makes credible why a woman would put up with such incredible abuse for so long. And I'm sort of like, you know, I think domestic abuse is a little more complicated than that. So people being like, it's not a credible portrayal of domestic abuse. Like, whatever, righty. But I did save, of course— The meanest review for a person we actually haven't had on in a couple weeks, so I'm glad to bring her back, Miss Pauline Kale.
1: Oh, there she is.
2: Kale says, Listening to Jake and Joey go at each other, like the macho clowns in Cassavetti's movies, I know I'm supposed to be responding to a powerful, ironic realism, but I just feel trapped. Jake says, You dumb fuck. And Joey says, You dumb fuck. And they repeat it, and they repeat it, and I think, What am I doing here watching these two dumb fucks? (laughs) Kale goes on to say, the tragedy in Scorsese's struggles with the material in both New York, New York, and Raging Bull is that he is a great director when he doesn't press so hard at it, when he doesn't suffer so much. He's got movie making and the church mixed up together. He's trying to be the saint of cinema. Raging Bull is about a character he loves too much, it's about everything he loves too much. It's the kind of movie that many men must fantasize about their macho worst dream movie. She calls Raging Bull tabloid grand opera, and she says that when you add this whole movie together, Scorsese doesn't produce universality. He Mm. produces banality, and that what we get is full of capitals. And now every word here, I just want you to picture her writing it full of capitals. A man fights. A man loses everything. A man bangs his head against the wall. And De Niro was so annoyed with this review that he uh, printed off and scribbled all over it, and he wrote, that's the idea. That's him.
1: But I guess that this idea of it's Sis Kane without Rosebud is kind of the same idea that she's chasing at. Like, well, why? Like, why are they doing that? When I worked on a, you know, movie that had uh, some basis in reality, there was a struggle when we were going through like the, the writing process of it, where you're like, well, why? Why did this character do this? And and there's a, well, he did. He did do it. But you know, but we have to give them a real good reason. And I think sometimes people are inscrutable. Like, you don't know why they do it. They don't make choices. They don't make dramatic life choices. They just make choices. And and, and there's something about this character. It's like, it is unfilling, unfulfilling as a film, like story-wise in a way, but it's very fulfilling artistically. It's very fulfilling as a character piece. But like, I couldn't tell you like, the story of this, there's no drive to this story. It's not like a, it's not a, it's not a, a hero's journey. It's it's nothing. It's just a, it's a biography. It's a biography that is uncinematic. Ultimately, I mean, uh, uncinematically told, not visually uncinematic.
2: Yeah, I mean, I really buy him as a character. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me of a thing. I hope I haven't even quoted this on the show before. If I have, I'm sorry. But David Ehrlich said the smartest thing. David, the film critic David Ehrlich, yeah. about the period that we're living in, about the person in control of the White House. He said. This is a tragedy about a man who wants to be loved by everybody and in the process becomes the most hated man on earth. Yeah. And that's, to me, what I think Raging Bull is also about. It's a really similar personality trait.
1: Well, now, I mean, he's definitely in the Oscar talk already for this year's Oscars. But when this movie comes out, this gets a lot of nominations, right?
2: Yeah, it gets a ton of nominations. I mean, it's awesome to get to see Thelma win for editing, Mm -hmm. you know, who went on then to edit all of his films. They're actually—their relationship— a lot of people think it maybe started around here because this is when she really got to work with him for real in one of his major films. But it started a, almost a decade and a half before. Oh, wow. Thelma met him when he was a student, and she was already working at tra- – training at being an yeah. editor. And he had been working on a student film where the editor that he had been given had destroyed it in a lot of ways. Like, he had erased a lot of fr- – like, he had – Cut a lot of the films in the negative cutting so that right. he, couldn't, he couldn't reconstruct everything he needed. So a film professor asked her to jump in and help this young Scorsese kid in 1963 on the student film called What Is a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This? And then she connects with him again a few years later for another of his smaller films that like, were before he broke out. But she had a hard time getting into the editor's union. Really? And she was just unable to do it. She was she had too much experience to go through the apprentice apprentice stage that they wanted her to be. And they wouldn't let her just enter at the level she was. Wow. And so she wasn't in the union forever. And it wasn't until Raging Bull that Scorsese basically was like, You need to put her in the union because I want her to be the person to edit this film. And wow. help straighten it all out. And then they've been loyal to each other ever since. But anyways, I digress. Um I actually have kind of a long clip that I want to play about the beginning of the Oscars because I think it's really fascinating how it ties together this movie and Taxi Driver. Because here's what happened the night that Raging Bull was supposed to go to the Oscars, which is Regan gets shot by Hinckley over his Jodie Foster obsession, connecting back to Taxi Driver. And so they have to postpone the Oscars for 24 hours because of this shooting.
3: Wow. So this
2: is Johnny Carson coming out at the very beginning of the Oscars the next night, the night that... Win. Thank
3: you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure that all of you here and most of you watching tonight understand why we'd have delayed this program for 24 hours. Because of the incredible events of yesterday, that old adage, the show must go on seemed relatively unimportant. The Academy, ABC Television, and all of us connected with the show felt because of the uncertain outcome, as of this time yesterday, it would have been inappropriate to stage a celebration. But the news today is very good, as you know. The president is in excellent condition at last reports. He's been conducting business. And he is. Uh, and he happens to be in very good spirits. Uh, after all, you must remember this is a man who, yesterday, while he was in the hospital unable to speak, wrote on a sheet of paper All things considered, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. <laughs> So tonight, the show does go on. Now, two weeks ago, President Reagan videotaped an opening greeting for this occasion. We were in contact with the White House about two hours ago, and it was the President's express wishes that we use for that introduction. And I might add uh, that you might like to know that he also asked for a television set in his room so he could view this program tonight. I was... Uh, Actually, the president was in such good form today, I was very tempted to call him and ask him if he had any more of those one-liners that I could use. (laughs) So it is especially pleasing tonight, ladies and gentlemen, to be able to say, here is the president of the United States.
0: Good evening to my fellow Americans, eagerly awaiting the presentation of the 53rd Annual Academy Awards. It's surely no state secret that Nancy and I share your interest in the results of this year's balloting. We're not alone. The miracle of American technology links us with millions of moviegoers around the world. It's the motion picture that shows us all not only how we look and sound, but more important, how we feel. When it achieves its most noble intent, film reveals that people everywhere share common dreams and emotions. Tonight, I applaud all who create, make, distribute, exhibit, and attend movies. I salute the Academy for the influence its work has on the world's most enduring art form. Film is forever. I've been trapped in some film forever myself. (laughs) And as a former member of the Academy, I ask you now to join Nancy and me in enjoying this year's ceremonies.
2: This just really struck me, and I wanted to play this whole clip because I was thinking as I was watching it, as surreal as life is, it is, to me, vaguely comforting to know that at least there was a moment in 1981 where life was so surreal that you had an actor who was president, who was shot because of a movie that was made by a person whose films are going to get honored at that night's Oscars, who was yeah. going to give a speech. That's also pretty lunatic. So at least, like, knowing that America's always been kind of crazy.
1: Just that whole crowd applauding for Reagan, in, in my mind, knowing where we are, too. It's like, were those people in the crowd, like, Reagan fan, You know, were, were they supporting what Reagan Believed in at that time. It's, it's, Luckily, he
2: hadn't gotten to start the nuclear warfare or the destroying of mental hospitals. He was, it was 81, so he hadn't uh, gotten to do that much damage yet.
1: That's a really interesting clip. I never knew that that occurred so close together.
2: Well, speaking of things we missed, in researching this, this episode, I realized that I completely missed that there was a sequel to Raging Bull that came out two years ago.
1: Wait, what? Uh-huh. Did you hear about? Okay. Like you didn't hear about this. something.
2: No, I'm not setting up. I'm telling you the truth. Look at me. Look at these eyes. Right. No no new taxes. What? Right. Um no, what I'm trying to tell you is um yes. So Jake LaMotta in 1986 decided that he was going to write a sequel. You know, now that his whole yeah. thing was so successful. Now that he was actually even around 86 getting clips in a new Scorsese movie he's in the Color of Money because he's actually in the original one too. He's in the Hustler. He's oh, a wow. tiny cameo in there. Um, great movie. If people haven't seen The Hustler, Hustler being a sequel or the prequel, prequel. Well, the first. Hustler film, being yeah. the first of the movies in which Color of Money comes in later. Um, so he writes a sequel that is sort of almost his Godfather too, of of the Raging Bull verse because it talks about who he was as a child, how he was formed, and he thought if we make a Raging Bull 2, this will really explain why I was why so angry. Yeah, yeah. Um, this movie did not happen. Was not supposed to happen, and then somehow magically was made in 2017 as a movie called The Bronx Bowl because they couldn't get the rights to calling it Raging Bull 2. There was a lawsuit where they're like, you are defaming the good name of Raging Bull. Yeah,
1: I'm sure. could you know what I see? A worthless life, if you let me. I could teach
3: you everything I know. Have you ever thought about putting on the gloves and learning how to really fight?
5: I you tough, I make you into a man. I made me
3: champ, I did it all
5: on my own. Me, my niece. You got a devil in your head.
1: Are you tapping my wife? Jack. Excuse me. It's definitely Lamar's life.
3: We both know the deal here, Jake. And what we'll deal was I? We got unfinished business.
1: Wow, the makeup is Dick Tracy-esque But I will say, not as bad as I expected it to be Like, you know, in the grand scheme of things Not as bad as I expected it to be, Amy Wow The makeup, yes, worse (laughs) Um,
2: Maybe, Maybe the makeup of the original Raging Bulls is just as bad But in black and white, you can't tell
1: Well, Amy, I imagine... That there has to be a Simpsons clip. I mean, there's definitely a Rocky Simpsons. We know that. But is there a Raging Bull Simpsons?
2: There's not as many as I thought. There Mm -hmm. are some allusions. There's a black and white boxing montage um, that I didn't include because it's a black and white boxing montage uh, where Homer is a boxer. I think we've even played clips from that before. Uh, So what I pulled is a clip from actually an episode we've already had a clip from, too, which is the mansion family where Homer becomes very rich and he takes over a yacht. And while he's on that yacht, we've already played the clip where he enters the yacht. He has a monkey fight. Here's the monkeys fighting. Give it to
5: him, boy. Give
4: it to him.
2: Harry. Oh, he ain't pretty no more. That's all. Uh. Actually, I really hate that line in the movie. He ain't pretty no more. Because it's like, we get it. You know, it's Uh, been like 8 million things. it been like, that guy's good looking. That guy's good looking. And then we watch him smash his face. And yet the movie still has to say, he ain't pretty no more. And uh, I'm like, dude, give us some credit here. We're not all a Jake LaMotta brain.
1: Well, now, this movie is number four on the AFI top 100 list. Uh, What do you think? Is that too high? Is it too... It
2: feels high. But... It feels high. I do I do really like that this movie so accurately captures to- toxic masculinity better right. than Taxi Driver. You, you know? think so? I do. Hmm. I do. I think it gets so many things right in how interactions go badly and in setting boundaries and in boundaries that aren't set at all. You know, Joe Pesci trying to set boundaries. I don't want to hit you in the face. But the second you say, I don't even have gloves, that's when you lose control of the interaction. Right. You know, to not walk away from a person like Jake until the end. He probably only wins by walking away. So I think it's a fascinating study in how these things work. But honestly, when I was watching this movie, I thought, you know, there's another movie from around this time period that's also a black and white movie that's also about masculine anxieties that I really wish was on the list. And that's David Lynch's Eraserhead.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. I've never seen that. Oh, I think yeah. you'd
2: love it. I mean, you're a parent, so I don't know. but All right. Yeah. Although they are very different when I think about it. There's not it, – that's not – yeah. But, but – well, well, well. I'm just going to grumble and then you can talk about it when you see it.
1: I, I got to say, Amy, uh, and maybe this is an unpopular opinion. I don't think we need this movie on this list. At all? I don't know. I I In the rewatching of it, I was like, I like this movie. It's fine. It does not engage me as much as I remember it engaging me. Um I think that I've seen movies on this list that I felt much more compelled by. I'm on the camp that I think I like Taxi Driver more than I like this. I like the ambiguity of Taxi Driver. I like the dangerousness of this, fair, uh, you know? Yeah. I feel like this is a biopic that um I don't disagree with some of those reviews where it's like yes, it there are things. It is a film of beauty. Like it is shot wonderfully. It is it is artistry at its you know, at the nth degree, like, and that, and the performances are amazing. And, and that's, and that's a tricky part of it, right? We just spent however long talking about this movie and I can point to a million things that I think I love about it. And I, am a fan of, but at the end of the day, I'm like, it's good. And it, and I'm, and it should have brought back his career. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just don't know if it's like, if we're talking about making room on the list that would mean that we have to like we have to bump off one of these films, and I believe that when we did the poll, this was the film that people That's voted true. to get off the list. Um, and it's interesting because I think this movie resonates a lot more with the crowd that is voting on this. You know, um, but four moving up twenty spots, I don't think it does anything for cinema that puts it in the top four. Like this is if it was in the top four. It wouldn't have been voted off by our fans, right? Because you can't, like, if you tell me Wizard of Oz is in the top five, of course it is. Everyone's seen it. You got to love Wizard of Oz. You know, Casablanca, of course, it's a staple of culture. You know, this movie has tentacles out there, but it's not. Maybe kicking it off the list is is much. Is, no, 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 I like much. it when
2: you're bold. I like it when you take down a heavyweight. Yeah, I just, I, I... I mean, you're right in terms of, like, does this film have at all the rippling effect that we see from A Wizard of Oz? No, not no. even close to it. Not, it's uh, one of five five boxing films.
1: The, the The biggest argument that you could make for this movie as far as a technical point of view is it did something that no one else did, which was put the camera in the ring. Now, are we saying that that put the means camera in the, put the ring, put, ring, put, put the, the camera, camera in the ring. ring. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, if we're saying that that's the real defining thing, yeah. I don't know. Or is that like, is that worth it? Is that worth it in a world where we have a, and I know we go back to this all the time. There's no female directors. There's no this, but this is a movie that I feel like sneaks in. It's there. We have a lot of Scorsese on here. Um, what if we get rid of almost all this Scorsese? Well, I don't know about that because I, I I think like he is one of the great American filmmakers, but, but it's like but still, what if we get rid of most of him? There, I mean, look, I'm also a King of Comedy guy as well. Like, I would love to see, you know, I think King of Comedy is great. Um, but my my thought is, is it one of the best movies? One of the best American movies? Man. I don't know. I don't know if I can full-throatedly say that. I don't I don't have any desire to see this again. I mean, I would probably, you know, if you were ever using it for a reference, because I think there's some interesting things in it that they do, but it's not like, and I, I'm not like, oh, I can't take a depressing movie. I'm fine with depressing. I've seen more. I, I watch Blue Valentine. I'll watch that again. You know, it's like, I watch these movies that-
2: Blue Valentine, actually, The bathroom scene, and that reminds me so much of the bathroom scene. Yeah. Like,
1: open the door.
2: Open the door. Yeah.
1: Um, so there are things that like, I'm not scared of, Oh, it's weighty. I just don't think it's, um, it's not an engaging story. It's a good character study. We've talked about a lot of that. We've seen a lot of character studies. We're watching this whole thing. And I just feel like what you're saying, like, yes, it represents toxic masculinity. It does. But is that, that interesting without, uh, you know, for example, I mean, and this is a crazy thing I'm going to say. I'm going to take it back immediately. But like a movie like Swimming with Sharks represents a certain type of toxic masculinity that is really well done, that has a very compelling story attached to it. You know, I, like, I think In there the are... the
2: company of men. I love
1: that Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Uh, there's so many movies out there that I... F- I mean, A Few Good Men... That's not on this list, is it? No. no. Yeah. Uh-uh. Not that there's, this, no, not that.
2: there's no Tom Cruise on this
1: list. Wow. Um, not that I would put Few Good Men, but it's like there are a lot of studies... Of this type of thing.
2: Well, I will say I don't need to keep overrepresenting De Niro on this list when there is no Tom Cruise, there right. is no Philip Seymour Hoffman, there is no mini actors that I love that are not here at all.
1: And I think De Niro is an amazing actor. I wouldn't say this is my favorite performance of him either. I just it, it like it just feels like when I look at this movie and go four, four. It just you know, and and that's my point. That's my opinion. I and and. That's where I, that's where you know, I'm landing.
2: I like it. I like it. I'm like, I, I taste blood. I, I, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's do it because I would I could happily live in a world with only one Scorsese film on the list, honestly. And in a weird way No Couldn't in a weird be. way, part of me would want it to not be any of the Scorsese films that we have on the list. I'd put on a different one, probably. I
1: mean, I love after hours too. I mean, uh, they, there's so many, you know, Amy, we will let everyone sit and think about that. As we kind of take a little bit of a break from the AFI list and look towards the past in a different way, for the next couple of weeks, we are doing a special mini miniseries, um, which is The Best of the Decade. So now, you and I will dig into— A decade into, that is
2: not represented at all on the AFI list because it was made in 2007. Yeah,
1: what is The Best of the Decade? We want you to be thinking about that as well. We're going to do this a little bit like we did last year with our uh, Best Films of 2018— um, and we are going to just get into this decade. Look around. What came out between 2010 and 2020? Like, what what is happening here? Um, so we will be talking about that. We'll be breaking it down by year. We'll kind of be going through our picks, discussing them. And then we want to hear from you in our uh, final episode. So um, why don't you call us? Give us a call. Uh, at 747-666-5824, and let us know who your favorite film of the decade is. So call us, give us a reason, be succinct uh, and clever, and your chances of being on the air are uh, much, much higher. But I'm really looking forward to kind of examining this decade because I was thinking about this the other day. We live in a time where I think movies are fading a lot quicker. You know, I was speaking with somebody the other day about Cloverfield, remember Cloverfield? It was like, oh, Cloverfield is redefining how we do things. And First, break. I haven't heard a person talk about Cloverfield in forever. I mean, you can make an argument that people don't even really talk about Avatar. The only people who talk about Avatar are, are the people
2: making fun of how we never talk about Avatar. Yeah,
1: it, it, like you know. So there, there are these movies that I think in the last ten years that really were like this is it, and then they just go away. Movies like The Birdman. And the oh, artist, God. you know, it's like these movies that take over the the, the public consciousness for a while. And we were like, wow, Birdman, 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 artist, artist, Yeah, artist, the art-
2: wild Birdman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I
1: mean, but it, but it is interesting. Like, and I think that we live in a decade now that things come and go much quicker. So it will be interesting to look back. I, I'm excited. So give us a call, 747-666-5824. Let us know what you think the best movie of the decade is. And we'll see you next week for part one of the best of the decade.
0: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.